Hello, and welcome to another episode of Candela. I'm Alan Schaller. My co-host Christopher Hooten and I are speaking with LA-based director Daniel Sackheim, who has directed episodes of Game of Thrones, Ozark, and True Detective, among other major shows. Daniel's talents don't just lie in the world of moving images, he's also a passionate photographer, a pursuit he follows regularly when not filming. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Dan Sackheim, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? My pleasure. Lovely to be with you. Or not be with you, but be with you in virtually. As close as we can do, yeah. <laughs> so I was looking over your uh, Wikipedia page earlier and, uh, you know, trying to figure out your career and, and chart how you came through to be, you know, one of the biggest directors on TV. And uh, I noticed it said uh, Sackheim's first time as a director was on Mushrooms. So, uh I, I, presumably this was a, a TV episode and not the hallucinogen, which would have been hard for a first-time director, I think, to operate under the, the pressure of <laughs> Magic Mushrooms. Right. Uh, yes, it was actually a, an episode entitled Mushrooms uh, from Law & Order, though I probably felt as if I was on Mushrooms at the time. <laughs> yeah. So you started out your career, You were, I know you were film editing and you were doing some music supervision. So how the hell do you persuade someone that from, you know, being in a music supervisor role that you're the guy to be directing these shows? Yeah, that's a really good question. How did I do that? Um, <laughs> well, I had uh, befriended Dick Wolf, who at the time was a, uh, a writing producer on Miami Vice. And we did a number of projects together where I sort of moved up the ranks as a as a producer and uh, working mostly in editorial and then eventually a line producer, uh, which for those uninitiated is effectively uh, a producer who handles the more production centric aspects of, of a television or a film shoot dealing with the budget and schedule and sort of um, making sure that it, the show works on a day-to-day basis, prepping the director and I was going to leave and go do uh, another show because the show that we I had been doing with Dick had uh, I had been producing for him had gone down. Law and Order was had just recently been picked up after, and I don't know if many people know this. After about four years of bumping around, they had shot the pilot, and for CBS and CBS had passed, Fox had passed, ABC had passed. NBC had passed once, so and that was there was the only avenues at those days, and so it came back uh, on a trial basis for six episodes, and I uh, somehow persuaded them to let me do one of them. I don't really know how I did it, but I guess I was more persuasive then than I am now. <laughs> we don't have to be persuasive now your credits list is incredible so i guess is is it the same is it i mean in photography it's not necessarily a done deal that if you've done well on one shoot that you'll automatically be good on another so is it the kind of thing where you have to prove yourself you know or is it like a that they're just like oh we gotta have this guy daniel do this or is it uh just uh, how many people are there who who can operate directing on something that with that budget and that higher pressure anyways, it must be quite difficult. Uh, you know, there's certainly no shortage of directors, mm. God knows, or people who want to be directors. So, I mean, it's competitive, I think, no matter 
where you're at or what your credits are. But, you know, there's plenty of jobs I have to go in and, and get and convince them that I'm the right person for it. I, I mean, the you know, the thing about it is there's multiple genres, right? So whether it's a straight drama or something that is sort of sci-fi centric or, you know, if it has comedic elements to it, you have to sort of convince them why you're, you know, a good choice for that. I, it does help having a list of credits for sure, but you have to win over every job. And are you pitching for um for specific episodes? Because uh, obviously I, I'm kind of interested to how they divide up the directors, you know, if you've got a season of television, who's who, which directors are going to do what? Uh, you know, nowadays more so than it used to be. Back in the day, when there was really just broadcast television, wasn't really possible because short of doing a pilot, where you know you would be uh, assigned something so specific, it was that you know you would shoot 24 episodes of television a season which seems mind-boggling to me because i don't even know how anyone really does that mm. but nowadays in streaming where there you know an average season is 10 episodes of television you know they can sort of try to pick and choose and assign a director to something where his or her strengths would seem best suited to the to the specific narrative of the episode and, you know, it works differently for different shows. Game of Thrones is, for example, unique because you're there for six months doing two episodes of television, mm -hmm. um, crossboarding or, you know, sort of checkerboarding with other directors. Yeah. I, I was going to ask about doing that kind of thing. Like, for example, Game of Thrones seems to me to, you know, per season to have a kind of great continuity to it. And so is this the kind of thing that you, are you in constant discussion about how it's going to be and between directors and dividing that up between you? Or, or do you feel like you have, your episodes have a kind of different feel to, to the others? No, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's a mixed blessing doing a show like that because it's a machine. Mm. Uh, they really have figured out how to produce the series at a, a certain aesthetic level. Uh, and uh, with high production value. And you have to fit into that machine for it to work or for you not to be sent packing, I guess would be the expression. <laughs> yeah. Um, but by the same token, there are opportunities that you can't get in an average television show, right? I mean, it's a big canvas with greater resources than you would have on just about any other television show. But to give an example, there's a, an episode that I did in which case uh, Daenerys is being held captive by this group of um, Dothraki. And, and they're deciding her fate and she's in this temple uh, made of straw for some reason that I've never been able to figure out. But in <laughs> any case, she's in this temple. And, and so uh, on the page, it's written that She's in this temple and she sets it afire and she kills all the Dothraki and she walks out and, you know, naked and she, all the uh, thousands of Dothraki bow down to her, making her her, making them her queen. So on paper, it's six eighths of a page and it says something like there's dialogue. And then she says something like she takes a, 
a lantern and throws it against the wall and the entire uh, building erupts in flames. Things start falling down. The Dothraki go to the door. They're trying to get out. And next thing you know, she emerges from the flames. And so I said to uh, Dan Weiss and David, the showrunners, I said, so what, I mean, it's kind of a sketch. What had you imagined for this? And they said, well, that's your job. (laughs) So the job becomes conceptualizing it in a way that expands the sequence and, you know, raises the, or elevates it, putting it into storyboard form and then taking it back. And then there's this back and forth process, at least on that show, where they look at what you've done and then they give you, you know, story notes and you go back and forth with a a storyboard artist, you know, creating this, you know, one inch thick document. Then you hand it over to, once they've approved it, you hand it over to the line producer who says, we can't afford that. And so- Hence why it's made of straw, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly right. Uh, So in any case, you go back and forth until you- land on something that is both uh, acceptable narratively and acceptable from a production standpoint. So uh, that's my really long-winded way of saying that you have opportunities to sort of bring something to the table because what they deliver, they might deliver to you is just a, a narratively a sketch on paper. Mm. Got it. Yeah, well, I guess there must have been, it must have been quite liberating with Game of Thrones in the sense that it must stand alone in terms of TV shows where people don't say to you, we can't afford that very often. It must have been, particularly as it grew and grew, it must have been the probably the biggest, the, the show in history where the network were most ready to be like, if you think that's what we need, if we need to <laughs> burn down a castle, then go ahead yeah, and do it. It's true, but you know, I'm sure that any director or DP would tell you that there's never enough time, there's never enough money. Mm. And if they, if you asked, I think at least any director, what, what would you like more than anything in a project? And the answer would always be time. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that from, you know, the, the issues that you have with budget from making like a student film, it just, you know, it always just probably scales proportionately. So yeah, it's never like, absolutely. oh, now we, cause like the more budget, the more, expansive your ideas can be and then the more outrageous things become and then i imagine all of a sudden you're raining it in like oh god why did i do a 10 minute helicopter shot around that car so i didn't need to do that now i can't afford this yeah oh no i often think with with like with film like especially if you're if you're a writer director like you you write the script and you have this like conception of it in your head and it's like this ideal and then everything that happens after that stage is just a gradual scaling back of your dream <laughs> you had for as all it's, of these different oh, roadblocks you know, come uh, in the way <laughs> so the expression the expression in uh, TV is directing TV is about getting your heart broken on a daily basis. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, uh, Such a masochistic you know, process. Right. It, I mean, it, it is different than, well, I can't say uh, being on assignment as a photographer because that's not what I do. But, you know, uh, doing street photography where you, you know, you find some fantastic image and you wait and you capture it. And then, you know, you're lucky enough to uh, have something that everybody responds to. You know, there's, I mean, I can't say there's probably no limitation, but it's pretty limited, you know, in terms of a limitation on you. Right. But in this case, Mm -hmm. because there's so much involved 
in terms of the 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 time and the and the and the resources and the and the cast and everyone fretting about money constantly. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, it never seems to be enough. And everyone always seems to be upset. <laughs> really, really selling yeah. the, the film industry to people. <laughs> I know, right? It's, it's, I know, it, it's really a great career. It has been good to me, but it is, it is, it can be endlessly frustrating. And I guess that it's about 85% hard work and about 10% joy. And, but the joy does, is really joyful. And then there's about mm. uh, 5% of glamour. Someone told me, and I, I I can't remember exactly the phrasing of it, but it was essentially like you have to be quite soft-hearted to create work, you know, and do artistic things. But then you need to also have another side where you need to be super steely to essentially have those have your beautiful projects smashed and broken around you and and kind of rejected oh, yeah. on a regular basis. Completely. And I thought I thought that's one hundred percent true because if you're too kind of there are so many people I know, I've met who are like really great at what they do, but I don't think they could hack being told that you know no, or or like this is rubbish. Even if you know, even if another one will come along and say that oh no, it's great. You know, some people just get really hit by criticism. You know, uh, I was listening to your podcast with the uh, the cinematographer who did Euphoria, and yeah, was it last black man in? San Francisco, right? Which is, re- I mean, he's super talented and it's really beautiful, but he he said something which is a real truism, at least in terms of directors, that you aspire to do, like have a big canvas and to do a big movie, like um, let's say a Marvel movie. Um, and, and then as you've been, as they figure you're worthy of being responsible for this, these hundred, a hundred, two hundred million dollar budget. By the same token, they're on your back constantly, and it seems like so weirdly you want more in terms of resources. But the more resources they give you, the more anxiety they have, and the more control they endeavor to take from you. So it's it's really it's weirdly counterintuitive. Mm. Well, you you um you touch briefly on on street photography, and uh, that's how we met. It is uh, through street photography, and and um, what what got you into it? Were you doing it before uh, doing moving picture, or, or is it something that you took up uh, or, or like resumed later on, or have you been doing it for years? And I was gonna I was gonna say just before you you jump into that as well, I was, like I think it was super interesting when you know I, I heard that you two you guys were friendly. Is that most people we've spoken to, and this is the same during my time as a journalist talking to a lot of directors, they've only, most only tend to have like a, a passing interest in stills, you know, they maybe they fooled around with the camera a little bit when they were growing up, but um, I wonder why that is somewhat rare. You think those two would be more closely connected? And I was just interested to, um, as well, to see a film and TV director who also has a real, real passion for stills. Mm. But yeah, I'll just throw that, not to uh, take you off track, but just thought I'd throw that in there as well. Sure. Well, I think I always have. I mean, I, here's the here's here's my, you know, tragic story where I bring out a, a tiny little violin. Is that when I? So my brother is a um, is a working fashion photographer who was an expat in um, Milan and Paris and London for like thirty years. And uh, but as he was uh, starting out in his career, I. Uh, had a passion for photography. 
And I thought I might uh, foolishly think that I could uh, build a career out of it. And ba- that was back in the days where everyone with a, a phone wasn't a photographer. Uh, and in any case, I was discouraged from by my parents uh, about the idea of competing with my brother. <laughs> so I kind of put it aside and then um, thought, oh, you know what? I'll just do something else altogether. I always had been interested in process. So I uh, thought, all right, I'll, I'll go to engineering school. Mm. That's good. I mean, engineers build stuff. And, and uh, that was a pretty good plan until I flunked out. So uh, <laughs> I had... To, so I was then looking for something that was in the arts where I had had this previous passion and I actually thought, oh, uh, maybe acting is the thing. And uh, so I then pursued that for a bit, which actually was helpful in terms of being a director and knowing how to talk to actors. Mm. But of course, uh, that requires a talent, which uh, apparently I don't have at least uh, in front of the camera. So, so then that got squashed. And then uh, I ended up at this company that produced commercials where I was able to worm my way in and, and I slowly uh, became an, uh, you know, uh, an assistant editor and then editor and then was lucky enough to transition over to film. But um, I, I've always had a love of it and, and sort of a love for street photography and, I think Alan and I talked about it when I took his workshop. You know, you you showed us images from Fan Ho, which has I always been sort of an inspiration to me, along with you know you know Jay Maisel and Elliot Erwitt and and uh, and so what happened was there was a strike in two thousand. I want to say two thousand eight, uh, where. Um, uh, the television writers went out on strike and there was no production. And so I was trying to figure out what do I do with myself? And so I went out and I bought a camera and I took a photography course and I sort of fell in love with it as something to do when I wasn't able to be employed. And, and I just got back into it. And I, I, I think one of the, you know, I actually have a number of friends who are television directors who have great passion for it. And I think, one of the reasons for that is that um, you don't really have anyone telling you what to do or what to create, or it's as much as I love the collaborative medium of film, and I I genuinely do, and I think there's great inspiration to be to come from working with people who are smarter than you. Because as I said, if I'm if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room, um, but. I would say it's really, it's enjoyable to actually pursue a creative endeavor where you are sort of the sole uh, arbiter of what it is you do. Mm. Yeah, and and yeah. and do you feel like, uh, I, I guess it's like a yin and yang, isn't it? It's like one is such an involved process with these anxious kind of uh, big budget kind of scenarios and then street photography is just like ah off you go you see it's totally your own thing you know uh, like here's like weirdly one of the things that motivates me when i'm directing is that it is stressful and a lot of stress is not enjoyable but i always feel like you need a little bit of it Mm. a little bit of stress to be creative and i i don't know if 
I'm not sure if that that translates at all to what you do, what you guys do or what you do, Alan, like when you're on assignment versus, you know, out in the street. I think I, I, it's a good question. I, I think stress is a, um, is quite a good thing. Like, like for example, with, with Instagram, right. Having a, you know, having to play the game with it and post every day and do all that stuff that Instagram kind of requires, uh, is quite a pressure on a photographer, you know, you have to keep coming up with stuff. And I think a lot of people try and they, they put out stuff they're not really happy with. Whereas I try and set a standard where I'm not, you know, where I'm taking pictures that I'm proud of that I can release quite regularly. Um, and it's forced me to really kind of, I, I don't know, for some reason, this whole process with Instagram has kind of made me more, it, it's been like a motivation to try and yeah. always shoot, always improve, always, and, and, and not, not so that I can just keep the, I don't know. It, it, at the beginning, it was like, God, if I'm going to do this Instagram thing, I might as well actually properly do it. Because, uh, you know, rather than posting for a while and then leaving it and then coming back to it and then, you know, because I could see how it would be just a waste of time unless I did it consistently. And I don't know, some that that's one of the pressures, I think, is to, definitely a big difference from when I was doing it for just purely as a hobby. Uh, now I've got extra pressures and extra eyes on you and all this and expectations. So I, th- I think it's, uh, yeah, that's that's my stress with it. But other than that, yeah. I, yeah. I'm pretty chilled. <laughs> with the- uh, you are definitely. I mean, I can see that. In, I mean, you have such a gigant, ginormous following on Instagram, and it it's you know definitely built this huge aura around you. I'm not sure how to say that. I mean, like there's 75 billion photographers on Instagram and, you know, I can't say that there are that many that are known outside of those circles as you are. But I, but I also um, wonder if, at least for me, there's always this pressure of being judged on the last thing I do. Right. So I, I have a number of good credits, but you know, you're, oh, I'm always, there's part of me that's always sort of terrified of failing. And if I fail that that's all I'm going to be remembered by, mm. you know, I, I don't know if that same pressure exists as a, as you know, a, a street photographer who actually can make a living as a street photographer. And there must be nowadays be like three of them, you being <laughs> one. I, 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 I can totally relate to the failure thing, uh, but someone told me recently they were like street photography is great because you fail like three hundred times a day, <laughs> and then you occasionally get 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 one. Uh, mm. I ju- I kind of just accept. I always see it like photography is one of those things that you really do have to stay quite mentally positive about. And uh, Matt Stewart touched on this actually. He said, you know, if you actually go out believing that you are going to come back with a picture, then it, it generally happens. And if you go out in a bad mood and thinking it's not going to work, then generally you stop seeing things as much. And um, so I just try and keep myself from my internal kind of dialogue, not being, uh, or monologue, not being right. um, too negative and too stressed out just to kind of rely, like even if I don't take a picture I, I like in, in seven days, I still kind of think, I've got to go out there and do it, otherwise, you know, so that I'm primed for when the next one actually does turn up and I can take it. 
I don't know. Right. I, and I find it, it's, it's just becoming more and more and more psychological. Because it's like, uh, I've got the chops to do it, if you know what I mean. And I can, I know, I, I, I trust that I will see a picture if it's there. But um, sometimes you just got to just, yeah, so it just doesn't happen for a while. Like, at the moment, I'm in the middle of a bit of a rut. Cause I'm, and it's like, I used to take it really bad and think, oh God, I'm done. I'm spent. I've, <laughs> I've, I've hit my, my, the wall, you know, the, the kind of writer's block wall. But uh, it always seems to come back, so I, tr- I trust in it. Right. I, I go out there on the street just hoping that films are going to happen, and then, you know, if you're with the intention in mind, boom, operators just spring out the bushes and it all just comes, <laughs> comes together for me. <laughs> well, I think what, with what you guys are saying about, like, being judged on your last piece of work, I guess TV and well, photography is a little bit more forgiving in that sense in that a, sub, a substandard photograph is probably not going to affect you in the same way that, like, a, f- a film or a TV show that gets seriously panned can be like can really derail your career, I guess. So maybe it's a little bit a little bit harder in that sense. Yeah, I'm completely, and I, I mean certainly in a in a film uh, where it's pretty unforgiving, and you know I think it was Martin Scorsese who said this because I I think uh, Adam touched on this that or you guys did that. There's this notion of like how a, a great director can do a great film and another great film. And then all of a sudden they just completely miss mm. like, what were they thinking? And Martin Scorsese said something like every time you start a film, it's as if you've never done a film before because <laughs> right. Because each story is unique to itself and each bit of casting is, is unique to itself. And sometimes there's that synergy or, you know, chemistry that happens that's electric and sometimes it's just a failure. There was a series that I produced early on. It was one of the last uh, network shows that I produced and it was House with Hugh Laurie. Mm. And that was just one of those situations where the, the casting is just, it's just perfect. And, mm. you know, I, I remember that nobody wanted to cast Hugh Laurie. Uh, he was, uh, it, it was sort of a last choice and, uh, and and now you can't imagine anyone else playing that role, no. but but him and, and the cast that surrounded him, and then the idea and the writing, it all came together. And by and large, that rarely happens, or it doesn't happen a lot. And the same with a film; sometimes you just hit gold, right? And other times you don't. And it it, I mean, you know, more often than not, your odds are improved if you're good at what you do, like Martin Scorsese. And no offense to Mr. Scorsese, who's done two of, I think, the seminal films are on my best 10 list, which would be Raging Bull and Goodfellas. But, I mean, his last three-and-a-half-hour film, uh, which was... The Irishman. The Irishman, I I was a little baffled. And, and it, Mm. you know, and it didn't even seem to have any of the kind of flair that his movies do. I've now just, like, talked myself into a grave in terms of being able to (laughs) move forward in this business. But that's to me is like, you know, it's like it's such a weird miss to me uh, for someone who is does something so consistently. And I think that's it. It's like in the arts, you just, you know, you never know. Mm. Uh, Yeah. You know? Like you say though, I mean, I, I've I interviewed Martin Scorsese after when he was making um, Silence, and I think he'd probably be the first to to be really honest about the the hits and the misses as well, and how he probably felt about the Irishman going into it, slash to when he came out of it. It's a it's a fascinating thing. 
Yeah. I was thinking as well, Dan, obviously you've been fortunate to do a hell of a lot of location shooting, you know, whether it's presumably down in Albuquerque for Better Call Saul or in the in Missouri for Ozark or wherever you are. I wonder if um, that it must be very tempting to go out there and shoot some stills as well. I guess you don't have a hell of a lot of time when you're like watching back dailies and thinking about the next day's shoot, but you're in some beautiful parts of the world and it must be nice to get out there with the camera if you can. You know, weirdly, uh, I almost never end up shooting anything uh, when I'm working mm. on a, a show. Uh because you're sort of you're completely preoccupied with what you're doing, and and I will sometimes walk onto the set with, you know, my Leica, uh, and with the notion that like whether while they're lighting, I'll you know see something interesting or in the surrounding areas, and, and then you just I don't know I I mean I just feel like a dilettante. I guess is the only word I can put to it that if I'm, you know, I should be focusing on something. I'm sort of walking around with my camera and, you know, uh, trying to capture it. And, and I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm not the set photographer. So, I, I mean, like weirdly, I, I think I actually capture less in the way of photography when I'm working on a show, even if I'm in some beautiful location. And you've also got access to like some really, really, really interesting uh, scenes with like people and like with stuff already perfectly lit and everything it'd be such a great opportunity just to be like ha, 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 click uh, right but you know but but here's the thing if you're sort of in the midst of a scene and you're directing a scene and you're supposed to be focused yeah, on exactly. that scene and now the actor sees you sort of walking around you know with your like uh just there's like what what's he doing or what's or is there something wrong or is he bored it, it, it it's it's sort of um it's somewhat counterintuitive. You could like tag out with the set yeah. photographer. Just be like, you jump in the hot seat, pal. I'm going to take some pictures for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> see what uh, happens. Yeah. And I, I will say that the, it, it is not generally appreciated by the set photographer when they see somebody else walking around with a camera. Oh, yeah. And yeah. nowadays, yeah. on um, almost any show you do, actually, because there's so, you know, if it's a, if it's a successful show, right, there's a tremendous amount of secrecy built around it. Um, and people aren't allowed to have cell phones on the set. And if they see anyone with a camera, uh, they tend to freak out. And even if it's the director and so, uh, and then mm -hmm. if it's a show that I'm producing, I'm, you know, I'm inherently supposed to be setting an example for everybody else. So, you know, weirdly, I never, I rarely get to pull the camera out. I, I actually yeah. uh, accidentally stumbled onto a film set when I was in Los Angeles, when I was out there last, uh, well, few months ago and uh, I just saw this guy wearing this really cool hat and wearing this cool outfit and I was like on the street corner and I, I like went up to them did my street thing and just like started taking pictures and then like went around the corner and it was like a huge production with like cranes and cameras and like people in high vis and then someone saw me instantly it was like what the hell are you doing and I was like oh, I'm sorry <laughs> I, I just thought that they were just people just standing there they were like no you cannot be here and yeah, shooed me away. I've been trying to, uh, I'm not, I'm, this one on my to-do list is to try and get across actually to, to studios and to networks how much more BTS stuff does need to happen. Like there's always been a real paucity of it. You, you literally just, you get the one set photographer who often doesn't take, doesn't capture great stuff and that's it. And now, especially in the last 10 years, it's become so much interest in how a set works and, you know, and cinematography, and uh, I feel like there's a real opportunity for, for people to be, for there being more than just that one guy, you know, to be 
<laughs> actually documenting those moments. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I I think there's only so much that I mean. Look, the the the, the purpose of the of the stills photographer, right, is to capture uh, uh, promotional material, right? So he's focused on actors in the scene, and 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 oftentimes, if he doesn't get the shot, you know, after you call cut, he'll ask you if he can have the actors, and he sort of stages them in a way that you would stage them during the scene. But in terms of actually documenting the the making of it, that would be really cool. And I, I mean, it's rarely done other than in a documentary. Uh, mm. And I think there would be a market for it too. Well, um, I, and if it wasn't for the fact that I, yeah. I hate, I, I would hate the notion of actually walking on somebody else's film set. It is the most uncomfortable feeling there is. Uh, that would be something <laughs> I would pursue. <laughs> I can't tell you how much those uh, it gives me like flashbacks those stills photographers so not to like disparage them but like when I back when I was you know t- doing TV criticism day in day out I was I'm sure I probably reviewed your episodes at some point Dan many times and you'd uh, it'd come to you know you'd write up your piece and then you'd come to publish it and you want to use you know an amazing still and the ones that would come through the official ones you get through from the, the press department for the network always just like you probably you know staged some incredible wide shot and then the, the still is always just like Daenerys just like sat there like looking into camera and it's like how, yeah, how right. is this I the pressure exactly. out of all of them like, <laughs> yeah so, so Dan since you've um kind of been more actively doing some stills photography and you're totally weapons free to say no it makes no fucking difference whatsoever but do you do you feel like it's changed the way or helped you at all when you're thinking when you're working with a DP and composing a shot do you think it's had any effect on you yeah I think so I mean I I've always been, you know, a, a visual director. Um, I, I, here's what I, I think it does. I think one of the things that I like to do, or I, I hope that I do in terms of storytelling and, and how I sh- will shoot a scene, um, you know, whether it's a, a, a long one or uh, there's a design behind um a sequence is to uh, pose a question that needs to be answered, mm. you know? Uh, so you're, you're trying to kind of hook your audience in by looking like what's going on in the scene and maybe how you sort of start a shot, for example, right. And then slowly pull back or, you know, you're on, you're over a mystery figure and the camera starts slowly come around to reveal them. And I, I, I would like to think that I try to do that in my photography that I try to shoot something that, you know, makes the audience sort of, or the viewer sort of stop and like, what's the story behind that? You know, certainly I, I see that a lot in Alan's photography. And, and so I, I think it helps me to um, hone that skill set. I hope it does. And, and it, it you know, it keeps my eye active because I'm always thinking mm-hmm. about, compositions or, uh, or, you know, light, um, and that, or, or I'll get an idea by being out in the street and sort of shooting someone who is, you know, you know, just their head is clear in the light and their body is in shadow. Right. And then, and then I'll, it'll give me an idea to have in, in a conversation, a collaborative conversation with the DP, like, well, is there a way to do something like X or Y? Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it does translate to a degree. Um, mm. it, it, it helps yeah. give you ideas. I'm, you know, and I'm also like one of these people that I believe, 
you know, uh, no matter how much you plan, and you do obviously plan a lot when you're shooting a sequence, right? You're giving thought to what's the point of view of the scene and how how can that point of view be realized uh, visually, uh, or how can that be uh, be realized in terms of the staging of the sequence? Um, God, and I just lost that thread. Damn it! Um, mm-hmm. That uh, that there is a bit of dis- there's always a bit of discovery, right? The an actor does something or comes up with an idea that you never could have imagined, right? Because you don't inhabit that character. You're kind of a, as a director, hopefully at thirty thousand feet. And they, they live that. And so they'll come up with an idea which will then inspire you to do something else if you're fast on your feet. And, and I think photography, at least street photography in a sense, is similar, right? Because it's your, you can't, especially in street photography, you really can't plan anything. Or I mean, I guess you can. I mean, I've often gone to a location saying, you know, I want to get X. And, and actually there was something... Um, I remember, Alan, we were out in Venice Beach and you shot this stunning shot of this guy in the water and it was at sunset and the, and the light was just rimming him and, mm. and, and, the, and the water looked like liquid metal. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, I, I'm going to go out and try to shoot something like that. And I did. And, and, and I ended up shooting something really interesting, but it wasn't that at all because it, it never, ever seems to work with me that if I go out with a pre- preconceived notion yeah. in photography, that, that I ever get it. Like, yeah, ever. Yeah. It's funny how often, um, yeah, how, how you can think, oh, I'm going to try something like that. And then you end up uh, just coming home with uh, three pictures that are just like completely unrelated, like something you saw on the way. Or something you saw on the way home, or you just take, you just get a different idea when when you're you know actually on that location. Um, but I'm I mean I've tried re- I've tried replicating shots that I've done, like my own stuff, and even that is hard sometimes. It's I mean it's a little bit of it's a little bit of alchemy, right? I mean you're kind of at the right place and the lights at the right place and and. I think Jay Maisel said it. It's like shoot it when you're when you see it. Mm. Uh, like I'll be driving past something and I have to get to a meeting or a lunch and and I see an opportunity and the lights just right and yeah and and it's like no no I'll just come back and you come back and <laughs> it it never mm-hmm. works the lights not there the opportunity is not there uh, and uh, so so much of it is is what we do I think you know, in, in anything, right. In, in criticism, in, in, um, uh, photography, in cinematography, in directing, it's just, it's kind of the alchemy of the moment. Yes. absolutely. Well, f- funnily enough, weirdly, one of the times that I most felt a kind of, uh, understanding of, of that whole thing was, it's going to sound really weird. I, I was watching a video of, um, the snooker player called Ronnie O'Sullivan. who's like the best snooker player of all time at least uh, statistically and he pulled off this ridiculous shot in this uh, masters competition and it was like insane like they everyone was just saying like the commentators were like how the hell did he even think of that and how did he execute that and then this video was about him talking about that shot and he tried to recreate it and he couldn't and he did it like uh, you know under studio condition there, there were like no one in the audience there was no pressure it was just him and his you know and they, they set the balls exactly how it was. And he was trying to do it. And he said, sometimes you just need to be in that moment. Uh, the, it's, it's more the, the kind of, 
yeah, competitive streak or something. There's something that that puts you in a position where you can do different things. And I was sitting there thinking, yeah. It remind that reminds me of what Joel Merowitz was saying about the the, the Zen Archer. You know, just in in that moment, not even really necessarily looking, but it's yeah. just, it's, it's yeah, just, just based just, on just, feel. Just, yeah. But, but that's, it made me think, because there's a shot I did. I don't know if you know it, Dan, the, the one of the girl on the tube with her arm up and she's like staring out the window looking like... Yeah, and, the, and it's a high perspective looking down on Yeah, her. that's that right, one? that one. Yeah, yeah, I know it well. No, I, I've, I shot that and I saw it, like it was a really quick thing. I saw it and I was like, bam, and, and I managed to get it. And I didn't realize how that it was actually a really hard shot to get. I've tried to do it again since and I just can't do it. And I took that in 2015. And, I, and it doesn't matter how much better I get technically. I still can't take that picture again. Uh, and I don't know why. But I, I've given up now because I just thought, well, maybe that was just a thing that happened. <laughs> but that, yeah, and it got to the point where I was like, why am I here trying to do that shot again? I've already got that shot. I should probably go out and, and do something different now. But don't you think whether sort of, I mean, part of us, whether it's musically, or, you know, in the arts or a, a painter or a photographer or a director or cinematographer that you've had some success, right? Doing something very specific, like people really responded to it. It's like, so that first inclination is just to sort of try to repeat that. Yes. Right. Because you're effectively repeating that success, but it, I, I think it probably rarely works. And if you're, and you know, weirdly, the 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 artists that I respond to most, maybe not well, certainly musically, it would be the Beatles, right? And mm. uh, and and as an artist, it might be Picasso. And it's not that I love Picasso's work more than I love, you know, an work by an impressionist or you know a, a contemporary artist, but it it's that you respect the fact that he kept changing. And yet was successful at everything he did, but he had like eight styles. Now, he also had eight girlfriends, and I, I think, yeah, is that kind of <laughs> that I don't that that I I don't have. Uh, but nonetheless, um, not that I don't love my wife, which I clearly do, <laughs> for when she listens to this podcast. Uh, but um, but you know, there is something intriguing about the inspiration of being able to just completely throw away what you do, and start from scratch and do something else. And it's, to me, it's like, it's terrifying. Like you have to be so brave to do that. And the Beatles mm. did it like, I don't know, like every two albums was like a completely different yeah. um, uh, approach. I, I know. You know. It's so I've got their masters collection, the, uh, like the original masters on the, on the discs. And it was like their entire discography. And um, it's just so trippy when you realize how short a period it was all made and how good these so many of the songs are it's just ridiculous it's like were they you know like the eagles always used to say they used they wrote 10 songs and threw away nine of them uh, but it felt like if the beatles were doing that and that you know how many songs are they writing a week it must have yeah. been it's just insane and and i think i, yeah, I think yeah, a lot of people kind of discredit the beatles these days but you know, I think it's important to put yourself where where they were at the time, where this kind, you know, they kind of popularized that kind of music and they pioneered a lot of studio techniques and stuff and had all these ideas that no one else had ever thought about using the studio as an instrument itself and stuff like that. Right. And they were so so clever, and yeah, it just blew me away really. 
It's it's exciting watching people innovate because they're like they're put, they're going out on a limb there. Um, I, a musician once said to me, I can't remember who it was, was like, "Why do people go to live gigs?" And it's like, "Well, they go to live concerts because you know there's a chance that they might fail up there, and you're watching them thinking that this could all go horribly wrong, and they could embarrass the shit out of themselves." And that's kind of what makes it exciting. And it's similar when someone does a, a has a real pivot in their in their style. It makes me think of um if you're aware of this band, the Arctic Monkeys from the UK. Uh, you know they they'd released a lot of sort of indie very uk indie albums and then they disappeared for five years came back uh with this album that's like a a 70s easy listening album that's a concept album where they're a band called the martini police who play in a hotel and casino resort on the moon (laughs) it's just like wow you really like really decided to just throw the rule book out the window and start from scratch there and some people will absolutely hate it i think it's pretty amazing but it's just it's exciting to people see people really go for it instead of resting on their laurels yeah, absolutely. It's it's. Uh, I guess that's probably why directors um, maybe they they try and change. I don't know. It's 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 kind of like there's a lot of expert. You know, when you I imagine once you get into the groove as a director, you start to get offered projects as you're going, and you know, it's kind of like you finish one, and then you know, then you got another one coming up, or you you look you're at least being approached by things. There must be a pressure to kind of just keep the ball rolling uh, constantly. And I suppose there might come a time when you're just knackered, and then maybe that's how a, a, a film, or not, you know, not you, Dad, but like one, uh, ends up just producing something that is maybe they're trying to be different for the sake of it, or maybe they're just, you know, they're trying to get out of that comfort zone, or maybe they're just too damn tired and haven't taken any any rest. <laughs> maybe that's how these yeah, films end up like that. I, I don't know. I mean, you know. Um... I have great admiration for directors who change their style to be true or honest to the narrative that they're doing, right? Whether it's, you know, one film is sort of this very kind of, you know, edgy, uh, you know, handheld, um, God, I hate the word edgy, but, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, very sort of, uh, um, it's the word I'm looking for, Cineverte, uh, where, you know, another is sort of this kind of moody, stylistic, you know, very formal. But but I, I mean, you know, uh, I think you have to be sort of true to the source material, right? So I, I mean, I respect people that actually can, can pull that off. And yet, if you think of someone like Scorsese, right, he has a very sort of specific style. And he might modify it from time to time, but you can look at a film and you can pretty much tell if it's a Scorsese film, right? Mm. And and I think that, you know, you could uh, apply the same to, um, you know, any number of, of really high-end creative feature film directors. Uh, like Tarantino. Yeah. I mean, you know, it has a, a, a very sort of specific vibe about it. and And I find that it's, as much as I might try to sort of change up stylistically, I I always sort of fall back into something that I, that is a, a specific way of telling a story, and I and I think that's what helps me keep getting work. Mm-hmm. People do yeah. expect a certain thing from you. I know you've spoken about that, Alan. Like you know, you do have a very very defined style, and people 
like that and expect that from you. And it, if you <laughs> decided you wanted to do something drastically different, it might be difficult to get people to come along for the ride on that. Yeah. Well, I, th- I, it's, it's the juggle between um, boxing yourself in to something that you can never expand <laughs> out of uh, versus doing stuff that's too uh, broad that no one can really understand what, what you're trying to do. Um, yeah, that's the balance, isn't it? And the hard. Well, the Alan, hard. do you do you ever? I mean, do you ever come back with a, a, an image that you really love? It doesn't sort of fit into the style that people are accustomed. Your half a million uh, followers are accustomed to to seeing, and then you question, like, should I post this or what? Every so often, I, I I like to to mix things up and to put different stuff out. I mean, the the main thing is that it has to like tick. It has to uh, give me the fizz. <laughs> if I feel like, right. oh yeah, yeah. If I if I like it, then I'll put it out. But um, like for example, the skiing stuff. Uh, when I started going out skiing and taking those kinds of pictures, those are really different to to what I've I'd ever done. But I really like them, and then and then it kind of bolts onto your style if you like. And right. then uh, you start seeing different things in the city based on what you've seen out there, and uh, so I'm I'm always always open to, uh, you know, to producing new stuff and trying new editing techniques and all that kind of stuff. It's always tweaking, but yeah, I am actually getting quite fed up of uh, doing high contrast stuff at the moment. <laughs> I'm just uh, I I feel like I can I can do it now, and. I'm almost like treading the same kind of patterns. Uh, the thing that I, f- I find most useful is is traveling because traveling is, you know, by definition, you're, you're usually in a place that's that's totally different, and it just, ins- you know, you, you you apply your 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 trusty techniques to that place, but obviously things are different and people are different and the environment's different and then you start to mold into it and then all of a sudden you get a different a different picture so i i'm finding it quite tough just sitting here in in london i'm always like traveling around i find that that helps a lot um but yeah it's i don't know like i feel like my style's evolved but it, it's tough because once you you get to a certain point where you have your own style and and, and then uh, you have to hold on to that and not disturb it too much. <laughs> which, yeah. I which, know it's, it's, it's also, it's sort of commerce versus art, right? Yeah. Well, I say I, I do take a lot of pictures that I don't put on my Instagram for sure. Uh, in fact, on my Flickr account, there are loads more pictures on there than I, uh, than, than on my Instagram. There are like maybe 1500 more that I have never posted just because they're not really, I mean, Instagram format, and we've talked about this before on, on an episode where uh, the Instagram format isn't very good for certain images. It just isn't like uh, mm. stuff that's too subtle. So, yeah. Or, or requires actual like looking at detail. You, you can't, you can't see it because it's like a third of a screen, no. a third of a size. That's of a, true. So, you it, know, it, it has to stop you in your tracks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, so the kind of bolder graphic stuff tends to stick out more on Instagram, which is great. Uh, and I love that kind of style. Yeah, I felt that about when we were 
talking to Joel to Joel Merowitz because you know a lot of his images are there's so much going on and they really benefit from like a big old wall but or on Instagram it's, <laughs> it's really it's really hard to pull out those little details like yeah it's tricky yeah you know there's this famous Joel Merowitz photo where I, and I, I I think it maybe was shot in in London but it's it's these people on the street and a guy has fallen and he's He's laying in the street and then there's a guy who's walking behind like a, a worker with a, like a, with a hammer. And so it, it like tells a lot of stories like what, what the fuck's going on in that photo? Did that guy just hit that guy and he's fallen and other people sort of going on with their business and no one's really paying attention to him. And it's a beautiful photo, but it requires actually you have to kind of study it, right? There's the beauty of the photo is your like, what's the story behind that? Mm. And I, I can't imagine on Instagram, anyone would even stop to look at it because it, it really does require some, yeah. Uh, yeah. some uh, involvement. And you know what? That's, that's interesting. Cause obviously we've, we've been negative about film and TV, you know, and the fact that stills photography does allow you to be a lot more free and easy, but actually one of the great things about TV and film is that people are locked in, you know, they're not there for 0.2 seconds and you've got longer. And a weirdly a parallel I thought with, Better Call Saul, which is a, a show you've worked on. Like, I like how the storytelling in that show is very, like, clue-based. It almost feels quite noirish, and you're kind of like, okay, often there's these really long scenes in that show where nothing, there's not a lot of dialogue, and you're just piecing together what happens. Mm. And it's quite nice that you can go on that that slow journey that you maybe you can't in a photograph uh, it when it's boxed in. I agree. It's very measured in terms of its, its uh, tempo. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, and there's not a rush to it. Yeah, and I think people get too because uh, I, I the first time I watched Better Call Saul, I was like, oh, okay, this is. I, I was like, oh, it's just just a bit slow. I just watched um, Breaking Bad, and then I've been watching it again recently, and it's like, oh, actually, I, in some ways, I much I prefer it. Uh, it's just a totally different thing, and and I think I. I don't know, maybe there's this like Netflix effect where you're just used to like quick stuff, just like bam, 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 loads of drama going on, loads and loads of tense stuff. And then you just yeah. kind of expect that kind of ingratiate, you know, like a... Yeah, yeah, it's quite a conf- confident show in that respect, I think. And like you say, Dan, that it's willing to have the tempo of like, no, we're just going to follow this thing that's happening like in a shopping mall for 20 minutes and we're just going to see where it goes. I like that. You know... I actually think that that's sort of riveting. If, if you know, you think about, I'm sure you guys have seen 1917. I actually, I know Alan, because you talked about it. Yeah. Mm. And, I, and I've seen that, I love movie that three times, uh, three times in the cinema. Uh, and I, I just can't get enough of it. But, but there's that really interesting psychology to this notion of a, of a oneer. And he's obviously created this illusion that it's like, you know, one shot or two shots throughout. But, um, you know, in uh, there is a theory that when you, every time you have an edit, there's an imperceptible amount of time at which you lose focus, right, between those cuts. And, you know, to think about, oh, you know, uh, maybe I should get some popcorn or, you know, I didn't pick up my laundry today or, uh, you know, uh, why did my girlfriend break up with me? But in, when you're, <laughs> when you're, when you're watching a, a, a oneer as they do in in that movie, you are not given permission to look away, 
right? You're, you mm-hmm. have to stay focused because you're never given the opportunity to sort of break your concentration. Yeah. And, and so uh, I, I do think about that, whether I'm shooting, you know, a, a, a oneer, uh, you know, as I've done like a couple four minute oneers in like in a, in a party sequence, right. Uh, which is a lot of fun to do, but that, but the, uh, the substance of it over style is really whether you're doing that or something else is like, how do you capture the audience's attention and focus? And whether it's like Alan is saying in, in terms of a bold and graphic image that is on Instagram or that you're, 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 uh, uh, designing your storytelling in a way that it captures the audience's focus and doesn't mm. kind of let them go. Mm. Well, well, actually, on, on Instagram, I found a nice technique is uh, using a bold image first and then in a slideshow putting in images that maybe aren't as grabbing initially, but because you've introduced <laughs> people to a theme, then they, they stop for a second and you've got them for like, instead of 0.2 of a second, you might have them for 0.9 of a second and then they will flick through quickly go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, <laughs> and then on, on, on. Is that what train. it is? I've never really completely figured out the whole slideshow thing. So the meaning to the madness is that by by seeing the little dots on the bottom that you'll capture their attention for longer because well, they'll no, scroll through. It's, it's more that you can just show people images that aren't necessarily as strong as lead images. Um, right. But but are still good or you know but strong in terms of instagram strong if you know what i mean right so mm-hmm. not to say that that they're any worse or better than the first picture just they're just maybe not the same kind of instagram style image um but it's just well there's that approach and then there's also the fact that it's um you can you can convey a thought process through that by showing people you know like with the cap in combination with the caption you know, like, okay, this is the use of backlighting. And then you show different types of backlighting. Right. So like backlighting yes. at night, I, backlighting through a window, you know. Yes, I've seen, yes, I've seen actually how you've done it. And you, but you've also used Instagram in a way that's really illustrative um, versus, you know, just, you know, here's a picture, give me a whole bunch of likes. Yeah. Well, I, Which, but I, you know, I, I figured, well, I mean, I did that for quite a long time, that approach, <laughs> the latter approach, but I thought, um, I just thought, do you know what this? Uh, I'm just going to try and, you know, I've got all these pictures in this archive. Um, might as well just slap some of them together because they actually were taken in a, with a similar, you know, frame of thinking. So why not? Mm. And and it's weird how you can t- put together loads of random shots from different times of different countries that actually look like they fit together because of a theme, right? That you weren't even thinking of at the time when you shot it. Uh, so it's it's become quite fun you can put them together and and that's true no one ever really knows the backstory and you can say see you know it was really this genius idea I always knew that I wanted to capture images where (laughs) you know a bird was in the corner of the frame and look how I managed to do that but Uh, also also uh, it sparks conversation as well Uh, it, it does rather than it just being like a flame emoji with like damn you know, it it might say it might say um, it might say, oh, you know, I've I've often tried to work with backlighting, but I don't really like it. You know, I find it 
makes everything go to, you know, just, just, just something like that. And, and I, I, I know I'm completely with you. I, I have a really unhealthy relationship with Instagram. <laughs> Who, who, who has a healthy relationship yeah, with Instagram, no, I, in fairness? People who are. Yeah, I, I decided to take a, like a 72-hour a, a break from it, and I logged out, and I kept picking up my phone to look for it, and, 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 but I wouldn't log back in. And then after about a day and a half, all of a sudden I stopped picking up my phone. And it was like really, it was unbelievable. It was like, you know, I had gone through my withdrawals and the Instagram monkey was off my back. <laughs> and then I said, okay, well, I'll log back in. I'll start posting pictures again. And now I'm like right back to it, like picking up the phone every 15 minutes. It's yeah, just, I know. It's that whole dopamine thing. Yeah. Oh, yes, right? It's exactly, you keep getting this little dopamine hit. And it's It's, just, it's nice though that you, yeah. It's good though that you can get to a point where maybe you stop picking it back up. Like it speaks volumes that I've not done it, but like the fact for everyone I know who's done like a silent retreat says that the first three or four days are fucking horrendous. You're just like, <laughs> it's like torture. You've got no method of communication, no mo- no connection to the internet. You're just sat there like, I've made a terrible mistake. This is awful. And, and most people drop out during that time. They can't get through the first three days and they're like, I'm just... Take, keep the money, I'm just going home. But then if you do like push through and you make it to day five, day six, day seven, then you start to actually uh-huh. be okay with the silence and okay with the lack of communication. So oh, <laughs> at I least could, there I, is I, a I, light I, at the end of the tunnel. I would literally like just be breaking into people's <laughs> silent retreat huts and just like throwing stones at them until they made a noise or told me to start just well, anything. <laughs> but but here's here's my question for you, Alan, because you have so many followers and you get such great engagement. And I, I can't even imagine with that much engagement how much time you just have to spend responding to the comments. It would seem like you must spend hours a day just doing that. I think it, I'd lose my mind. Quite, it is quite time consuming. And and, and the, the, the thing that was really annoying was Instagram had this thing where if you responded to more than 100 comments in, in, a, in like a given time period, it would block you and it would say that you're spamming yourself. And it was like, <laughs> and so... <laughs> And, and love the idea of spamming yourself <laughs> and um so that went on for ages and i cannot tell you how annoying that was when you're trying to respond to people and you've i, I decided i was gonna do it uh whereas now it's, it's a lot yeah. easier so i can kind of sit down and do uh, do a block of comments but i think it's important to you're do absolutely it. right though dan because yeah i've i've known alan a long time and i used to try and talk to him while he was uh, responding to comments and now i've learned to just be like you know what it's 20 minutes we just we just do our separate things because <laughs> i know while he sits there and smashes them out <laughs> but it makes such a difference like with the whole kind of like there are very few parameters on instagram that could give actually trend like give your actual sense of it as a person over uh and i think I think it makes a huge difference. Like, even if someone's never going to comment, to see the the owner of the of an of an account actually responding to people, um, I think that gives it a different feel. It's not so self serving. It's all you know. It's kind of like you're engaged. It's it's the social part of of social media, if you like. No, I, I I'm with you. I'm, so I look, think I, I think it's I important. Believe it's important. Yeah, it's nice, uh, and it's like otherwise, you know, if you if you don't want to engage with people, why the hell, you know. What's going on? It's, I, I find right. it very cringy to see people posting stuff and then ignoring people asking them questions about it. It's like, oh, it's just, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you know, I'm with you. Uh, I guess it's just a, it's the question of it becomes then so difficult to 
I mean, for you, almost impossible then to sort of just log out and take a Instagram holiday. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just one thing that I've uh, I've just resigned myself to is that I'm just going to be on it and just do it. Right. But um, the, look, the way I see it, and I was I was like bitching about this to my dad once. I was like, I was sitting there, I was like, I'm sorry, I need, I'm responding to comments and. Uh, he was like, look, at least you're responding to people saying, you know, great, this is great, you're great, you know, love your pictures. He was like, I have to respond to shit all day long and it's just stuff that I don't want to do. So he was like, like, you don't do any more admin than most people do day to day. He was like, so just just accept it, just do it as part of your job. I was like, yep, yes, sir. Yeah. Well, And and so I kind of just see it as a necessary thing. Um, But I enjoy it. Actually, I, I, I well, not all the time. I, it's annoying when when it's just endless streams of uh, of smiley faces, emojis. It's like you know, but I still, I still right. say thanks. <laughs> right, like, or explosions, or like fifteen thumbs up in a row, and it's like, wouldn't oh, it yeah. just as easy to say beautiful image as as I'm mean, like, it would have taken the same amount of time as to press. The thumbs up emoji fifteen times. Well, it's not as bad as on YouTube. YouTube is the most annoying. I, I, oh, so annoying. Like you've got a video and ninety nine percent. Joel was talking about this. Uh, Joel Merritt's uh, about how everyone's just trying to say something witty and funny, and so, oh, it just yeah. drives me mad. It's like, oh, you guys are so bloody hilarious. Just like shut up, stop it, and uh, everyone's just trying to like out funny each other on right. in, in comment sections and it's just if that was going on on my pictures I would go nuts I'd just be like I'd, I'd block all comments <laughs> be like, if someone's trying to make puns about bike you yeah know, about- there was a while ago I'm not sure if they've changed it now they might have well have done but Vice decided to just um, they, they, they posted an article like we're just going to turn off comments on our stories <laughs> They were like, is they've been a shit show for a long time? No one's getting anything from them. Let's just not bother. <laughs> oh, I, like, I mean, one hundred percent. Well, the, the, there was there was a story about the the guy who runs Twitter who said that he was like, I failed. I've created a giant. Oh yeah, giant. that guy is that guy is losing it, man. He's just like he, he was going to turn. He has, out, does, yeah. he, he created a monster. I mean, if you think <laughs> yeah. about the, I, I won't speak to what you know to the UK, but in America, and I, you know. So I won't uh, clearly uh, endear myself to any uh, sort of conservatives in your audience, but it's a fuck, it's a shit show here politically. Yeah, and yeah. um, and and I believe that the you know to a large degree the root cause of that has been Twitter. It's it seems to be the uh, yeah. the place where the um. Oh yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just the worst. It's the it's the worst one. Like honestly, I can't tell you how much I hate Twitter. It's the absolute. Of all the evils, it is the worst one by a mile. And it is just, it does bring me some humor that that guy who vented it does seem to know that and is just unraveling slowly as he tries to (laughs) (laughs) put the beast back in the cage. You know, when you think about it, 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 uh, we're really good at sort of predicting unintended consequences. I guess why it's which they call them unintended consequences. But, you know, probably, it, you know, it was meant like a sort of a really interesting, quick way of, of you know, of conversing or, or sending off news. And now it's just turned into this kind of venal swamp. Yeah. Of, <laughs> you know. I know. Uh, it, it, of, it reminds uh, me of that uh, scene uh, in, in Star Wars where Anakin is uh, defeated by uh, uh, Obi-Wan. And he's lying there. Right. And his legs have been set on fire. And, and do, do you know that scene? <laughs> 
And and, and Obi Wan's yeah. like, you were meant to save the like the world, not destroy it. <laughs> and that's how I see yeah, tw- like true. things like that, where it's, it's like such a great opportunity for something amazing to have happened, and then it just ended up becoming a pit of of just absolute misery and anger. And oh yeah, and and well, this guy, this Twitter guy, uh, he I can't remember his name, uh, but it. Apparently he was, Jack, he was threatening to like just turn it off. He, he said something like, "I'm going to just turn it off." <laughs> so you can't just turn it <laughs> off, I imagine. No, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Dan. Before we finish up, seeing as you are the uh, the first director we've had in the show, actually, it's always been DPs before. Who are your uh, favorite DPs, either that you've you've worked with or you just always admired? Uh, Lebesky, I think, uh, would be one. And then, uh, I can't, uh, is it Storaro who shot The Conformist? I mean, The Conformist is probably one of my, you know, is a seminal film. And I think that had a great effect on me. And uh, Gordon Willis, uh, Caleb Deschanel for um, The Natural, uh, Deakins, obviously, Roger Deakins. Mm-hmm. Um, who else? They're uh, broadly, yeah. Robert Richardson. What, Bob Richardson. Yeah, certainly. he's incredible. I mean, yeah. you know, they would be certainly up at the top. A Lubeski in terms mm. of, his, you know, his light and how he uses natural yeah. light. I just think I, I'm i obsessed with that guy. His camera movement as well is just amazing. Some of the uh, handheld stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, here's an interesting thing. Like, I'm trying to think of that. I think it may have been Chapman. Who's no longer with us? Who did um, Raging Bull? And I mean, that's amazing photography, and it's so specific, right? And I can't remember who did uh, Goodfellas, but there's that shot that moves through it to through the back the of the tracking Copa. shot through the yeah yeah right. And and oh God, I wish I could think of his name. Uh, and, you know, but, you know, he wasn't famous so much for light, but, but how he moved the camera. So, I mean, I, I love different DPs sort of for their different skill sets. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's a good answer. Finally. I knew eventually I would come up with something smart to say. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I really enjoyed been, that. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us today, Dan. Thank you, guys. It was really a pleasure. I am a big fan of the podcast and... Uh, and Alan, always a pleasure to see you. And you too, my friend. All right, guys, uh, be well and stay safe. Absolutely, you too. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for listening to Candela. You can keep up with future episodes and news on the show on our Instagram at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A podcast. We will also be posting photography and cinematography that we like on there. You can also find us on YouTube and Vero.